this next talk. Now I would like to explore a little bit the question, what is awakening? Explore a little bit the experiences and ideas uh, of what enlightenment, liberation, awakening might mean, can be. And again, I, I, uh, I, I hope that it's helpful. I hope that it's helpful um, for you. Some of it will be similar to the previous talks on this retreat. Some, some will be, I guess, kind of you know, teacherly advice or information or clarification or outlining possibilities or pointing out, indicating possibilities for us as human beings, as practitioners. And alongside all that, you know, again, I'm partly um, hoping just to open up uh, the discourse around this and open up uh, our thinking around uh, these notions, um, awakening, enlightenment, liberation, using say, using them interchangeably for now, those terms, and opening up also our questioning uh, around that. And if you listen, you will hear that there are actually several questions interwoven in, uh, in, 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 in the questions that I'm opening up. There are several questions and they're, they're connected. They, they weave in, in and out of each other. So teaching, as I've, I'm pretty sure I've said before, uh, for me is always contextual. You know, teaching happens in a context. It's informed and uh, conditioned by that context. It has to be. Um, so, in a way, it's conveying what what uh, we have, uh, what a teacher has received from the tradition, from different traditions, from their teachers, from. Uh, all in all different forms and from all different directions, perhaps um, it's a uh, conveying also of what one has discovered for oneself and the, the possibilities there and uh, what might be helpful from one's own experience. And it's also, of course, a response to to the, the student um, or students or what what has been coming. Uh, from from the students towards the teacher, or what the, what the, what is uh, witnessed there. Um, so, as I said, I really hope this is helpful. And sometimes, um, sometimes a, a teaching is helpful only at a certain time, at a certain point in one's practice. So it might be that we hear certain teachings and it's just not the right time for us to hear those teachings. They don't impress us, they don't, we don't understand, they don't make much sense, or they just seem silly to us, or it doesn't fit with another idea we, we're more favoring at that time. Um, so really, you know, whether it's helpful also depends on whether it's the right time to hear a certain teaching at a time in your life, in, in your uh, in the development of your practice, in your journey, etc. So,
So what is awakening? If, if one, uh, again, listens or reads uh, uh, d- different teachers or, or listens to practitioners or asks uh, a, a range of teachers or practitioners, you know, asks um, what is awakening, what is enlightenment, what is liberation, what does it mean to you, um, you will surely get uh, these days a very wide range of answers, a very wide range of uh, notions and, and responses there. And you will also encounter many uh, practitioners who, who don't really think about the notion at all. It's not in their uh, vocabulary, or they make very little reference to it, or perhaps it only really means um, moments of mindfulness are moments of wakefulness, therefore they are moments of awakening. Um, and it's not really in the in the in their map in their orientation. They're not really referring to it, and it's not really a reference point for their practice and for their thinking and discourse, etc. Um, but there is really uh, a, a wide range. I mean, perhaps in in Buddhist circles, because of the centrality of the Four Noble Truths, which we've been discussing a little bit in the in the previous talks, dukkha, and then the third tr- truth, the ending of dukkha, the cessation of dukkha, um, liberation or freedom from suffering might be the commonest sort of nutshell response to this question of what does awakening mean. Um, but then that just begs, uh, for me, begs the next question, what does that mean? Freedom from suffering, liberation from suffering, what does that mean? What, what would it look like? What, what do you mean by suffering? What kind of suffering? Um, so to me just that much is interesting the fact that there's now such a wide range I've touched on this before um, but that that um, uh, social fact if you like is, is, is very interesting to me and it's, it marks our age uh, and it marks uh, the Dharma in our age and it marks the insight meditation community as well so you know I'm going to talk now uh, about, about this kind of stuff and obviously uh, I can't help but communicate um, some of m- my thinking on the subject or my my current thinking, my current approach. And, and of course that's going to be um, conditioned by reflective of an outcome of, of my journey with all this, um, obviously. Um, but I want to, it's not about me, and I want to uh, kind of hopefully say enough that opens up this territory for for anyone. Um, but obviously it's going to be uh, reflective of and informed by how I have related to this question in the past, which has... Uh, along with other factors, um, condition how, how I'm relating to it right now. Um, but I don't mean to communicate anything final. So I don't mean to give you a categorical final authoritative answer to what is awakening. And in, in a way, that's part of the very point that I want to communicate, um, is that the um, relationship, uh, the way we relate to uh, the notion of awakening, the idea we have of it, it evolves. 
um, or you know, this is again a point of view, it should evolve um, and it should be open to questioning. Is it open to questioning? The notion that we have of awakening, is it more that the very question uh, or the journey we have with the notion of awakening and what that might be is open-ended? So right there, it's quite a, a perhaps different point of view. I'll come back to this. A different point of view than one might have uh, encountered or be used to. So I don't want to be communicating a final, uh, this is how it is, dogma. Um, but, of course, it's going to be, you know, much of what I say will be inevitably influenced by my, my history with this uh, question, my experience with practice, uh, and, and my current, you know, way I tend to relate to it and approach and thinking. Um, but let's let's start with this business of how we approach um, the, the very notion. So people say awakening, enlightenment, liberation, and as I said, for some people they just don't register those words, they just ignore them. For other people they're really quite uh, alive or quite charged words, Quite they're quite emotive for us. Um, but one of the things I'm really interested in, I'd like to start there, is how, how, are we approaching uh, this question of awakening, uh, this notion of awakening? How are we looking at it? How are we relating it? How do we conceive of it? What intentions are we bringing to this concept of awakening, this idea of awakening, this goal, if you like, of awakening? And what of those intentions are conscious and which are what is perhaps unconscious in, in the intention? What are the assumptions and what are the, perhaps, uh, of those assumptions, unconscious assumptions that we bring to this um, word, this idea, this um, uh, notion of a goal of awakening? What drives of the being, of the psyche, do we bring there? So this, to me, is where I'd like to start, one of the really, really, uh, I think, indispensable um, questions to try to open up this whole field. How am I approaching it? How are we approaching it? How are we conceiving? What are the intentions, assumptions, drives involved for us? What goes on for us with respect to the idea and the notion of awakening? What goes on for us? What goes into that relationship? What goes into that conception uh, and that notion? What are we bringing into it? <clears throat> so, I think it's um, really helpful in this area, really important, and in fact potentially liberating in asking what is liberation, uh, and in asking what is awakening, what is enlightenment, etc., is help. It's helpful, important, and potentially liberating to draw attention to and contemplate, or at least consider the possibility that we, uh, m many of us, let's say, will tend to approach the question and the teaching of awakening, uh, enlightenment, liberation, etc., um, with, uh, to some extent, informed or impressed or, or driven by um, two motivations, uh, that I, two kinds of motivation that I would highlight 
uh, right now. And so the question is, how much um, is our approach uh, informed by, or motivated by, or shaped, or directed, or limited by these uh, two motivations? How much is our perspective? Um, and then the whole field, shaped, directed, limited, informed uh, by these motivations. So one is, this is the question, one is, one is the wish to measure where where we ourselves are on, on some kind of scale towards awakening. So it's actually, how much is the motivation involved in the way we approach the question of awakening and the goal of awakening, how much is that a kind of um, ego-measuring wish, if you like? An ego-wish to measure up, which is actually quite a normal movement and inclination of ego to measure itself. Ego, uh, or actually self, self um, self-sense, is conditioned by, is fabricated based on... um, any kind of measurement. And this goes extremely subtle, extremely deep. Um, I can't remember the name of a talk I gave, something beyond the measuring mind or something. Uh, forgive me, I can't remember it. But re- really in the subtleties of, um, not just in this gross way, when it's a really ego and inner critic, which is really important to look at, but also in the very, very subtle movements of the very fabrication of perception of object and subject um, is based on measurement. I'm not going to go into that right now because I've talked about it a lot before. Um, I think that talk was called Maya and Nirvana or something like that, Beyond the Measuring Mind, something like that, but if you're interested... um, but right now I want to talk about the grosser level, which is this kind of ego measurement, um, the sort of normal movement or inclination of ego. So how much is that a kind of motivation when we relate to and uh, approach the notion of awakening? And secondly, um, how much is there a kind of wish or inclination to frame our questioning um, about awakening uh, within the frameworks given to us by the tradition or traditions we are currently um, viewing as authoritative. So it's it's not really common, I, is an observation I'd like to make, it's not really common to radically question um, the views and definitions of awakening, enlightenment, liberation, etc., whatever you want to call it, um, that are handed to us by the traditions that we are um, currently viewing as authoritative. So in other words, wrapped up with this whole question um, of, of what is awakening and how we approach it, is this, is this relationship with authority and tradition and how free we are to really um, bring a kind of radical questioning there. So, two, two, two questions for us. How much um, is our approach to awakening, and our approach to even the idea of awakening, what it might be, what it can be, how much is it motivated, informed, uh, shaped, directed, limited by the 
tendency of the um, self or ego to, to want to measure itself, to measure up. And secondly, by a kind of unquestioned authority of tradition or a, non, a non-questioning of the authority of tradition. And sometimes those two uh, factors, if you like, um, combine. Of course, the, the measuring self and the and and the kind of lack of questioning uh, of, of the authority of a tradition uh, in all kinds of ways. And um, and sometimes uh, we, you know, it's not one tradition, it's like a tradition like, for example, Pali Canon Buddhism or even just insight meditation tradition. Um, as I said, you'll get different interpretations um, from different teachers within that tradition. Which I think is actually quite healthy. Um, but then the question is, and this is not an easy question to answer, why do I adopt this teacher's interpretation as an authority and not that teacher? Why do I adopt this teacher's interpretation as authority and not that teacher? And so what well, makes sense to me? Is it is it just is it just that? What's going on for us psychologically um, in the ways that we relate to authority, and in this case specifically authority of certain teachers and, and then the authority in relationship or around the notion of awakening. So to me, these are really important questions, to, you know, considerations to, to open up, to bring to our awareness. So regarding the first one, this sort of uh, tendency of the ego to, tendency of any self-sense to be built on, on measurement, and to, the discrimination of measurement, better or worse or whatever. And the tendency of the sort of grosser levels of self-manifestation, ego and certainly in a critic and all that, um, to be based on self-measurement view. Um, sometimes uh, a student uh, uh, who's you know been practicing a long while will ask me, "What what, what do you think? What's your take on stream entry or um, the first stage of?" Awakening that the Buddha outlined in the Pali Canon, um, or or phrase it something like that. And sometimes, sometimes, I I find myself actually want rather than just kind of say what I think or whatever. Actually, it seems like there's a more important question uh, that needs to be asked in response, which is why are you asking? Why are you asking? And sometimes I wonder. Um, and sometimes I think it, it has turned out to be the case. Uh, not not in every case at all. I'm, I don't want to in, insist that at all. But um, sometimes it's. I wonder: is it, is it that you want to feel you've achieved this thing called stream entry or this stage, as if I, I want to be one of those? I want to be a stream enterer. I want to be in that club. I hear people talking. There's these web forums and people say this. Or I was at a meeting and people were talking X, Y and about stream enterer. And I I want to be in that club. Or, obviously a very related question but subtly different. Is it that you don't want to think and feel that you're not in that club? that you're not one of those. But very subtly different. 
and why? Why? And actually, can we, do we dare to really explore this question? It takes a lot of courage to explore that question. It's quite, it's quite radical to turn the questioning around that way. Can we explore it vigorously? And sometimes I've sort of brought this up and, and a person kind of shrugs it off or whatever. And, and sometimes it's been my sense that, hmm, I think there's a lot more to, to investigate here. Um, so I don't mean by this to jump to the other extreme, uh, which, which sometimes is, is communicated in certain teachings of just drop all notions of awakening, forget about it, it's just an ego trip. Um, just don't, don't harm yourself by, by uh, even asking the question of what it might be and might it be possible and uh, how and all that. Just drop it. Just forget about it. Don't go near it because you get, by going near that question, you're you're poking the dragon of the inner critic. Uh, the the dragon will will be awoken and, and and torment you. But by asking this question, why are you asking? And can you really vigorously um, explore that? I I'm asking it out of kindness. Um, or when I ask it, I ask it out of kindness. But there's also, or in asking it of yourselves, um, part of the reason for asking it is is kindness. Can you get that? If I'm actually chasing something just for the sake of kind of um, <coughs> satisfying the, the unsatisfiable inner critic, or just in getting my stripes, measuring up, finally being good enough, um, that's really unkind to live a life that way, to pursue practice that way, to, for, for one's practice to be shot through with that kind of drive. And so the question is coming, uh, if one poses it to oneself, um, or, or in, in a, in a, in a, um, with a friend where it feels safe to ask that question together with each other, of each other, um, it's coming out of kindness. But there's also a lot of... Um, boldness and radicality in the questioning. It's kind, but I don't know if you can there's a if you can hear that there's boldness and radicality. Why would I why am I even asking this question about awakening? What is my relationship with this? And there's aspects, this is one aspect, there's a whole other kind of level of what we call meta of what we might call meta freedom. M E T A a whole other level of freedom that can open up when we open up our relationship with the very notion of freedom, of liberation, of awakening, enlightenment. And that's partly what I hope to open up a little bit. It's like a whole other level of awakening, a whole other level of freedom. But even asking this question, why am I asking, and asking uh, what am I bringing to this uh, question? What's what my notions? What's my relationship? What are my intentions? These are not easy questions, and and um, I I think they take courage, they take honesty, they take integrity, and they take boldness. Um, so personally, I am very interested in awakening, enlightenment, liberation, 
what that might mean, what it can be. I'm very interested in the possibilities uh, for a human being. Uh, possibilities for consciousness, the possibilities for living, for uh, life, for the sense of existence, the possibilities for perception, uh, the, the, the breadth, the, the range, the depth, uh, the possibilities for soul, the possibilities of um, what, what does fruit, liberation of my action in the world mean. Uh, and the possibility in, in, in relation to all this um, for society. We talk about awakening, liberation. What might that mean um, socially? What might it mean um, for the wider sphere of being and beings? I'm also very interested in the ideas about uh, about it, notions, and our relationship with it, and our relationship with um, our ideas about it, as I've, as I've uh, just said. But you know, when when someone talks to me um, in an interview, uh, and so- sometimes the the student might bring it up, they're, they're feeling this pressure or this measurement or this way that things have just gotten really tight and constricted and painful in relation to a question of some kind of um, achievement on the path, meditative achievement, whether it's awakening or uh, jhana or, or emptiness, stages of emptiness, realization, or whatever it is. But when someone's talking to me, one of us, either it's them or me, um, is is kind of wondering about how much of the intention is um, is kind of coming from this measuring, wanting to measure up, and how much pressure there is coming from that. Then, often I feel that uh, the most at that point the most necessary and most interesting um, piece to explore in the conversation is exactly that. It's the relationship with. doesn't mean we won't get to um, the rest of it and uh, the ideas and the possibilities of, of what it might mean and how one might move towards that or open that up, whatever metaphor we might use. Um, but this piece about relationship with and what comes in in terms of intention and motivation is, is a is a really necessary piece and oftentimes it's like it's a we need to do that before we can go any further and and it's actually quite an interesting piece i think um so sometimes sometimes or at different points let's say um for for a person um the dominant intention or push um, regarding either the whole of practice or some particular strand of practice like jhana practice or emptiness practice or whatever is is to prove oneself what's going on i have to prove oneself is it to myself that i have to prove one myself is it to others and who is it to um, a certain teacher or teachers and as i said to, to measure up somehow and and like I said, if this is the case, or even if one of us in the conversation suspects that it is the case, then in, in my role as teacher, I'm a, I actually become more interested in that, at that point, uh, or as a necessity to understand and unpack it, and, and to find freedom from that 
particularly narrow and painful drive. Um, and and that becomes at that point, you know, just at that point, um, more interesting and more necessary than attaining jhana, attaining uh, this stage of realization or whatever. If we just dwell a little bit with um, jhana practice, so the same kind of, again, psychological mechan- painful psychological mechanics regarding motivation and can go on there um, as they can in relation to awakening. Um, with long-term practice, I mean really doing a lot of jhana practice and doing it very thoroughly, um, uh, one sees, uh, I think I think it's almost unavoidable to see that, uh, I, I, I hope it's, it seems pretty obvious that one would see that the attainment of any jhana is, is not really dependent on myself. It's dependent on the conditions um, and in the moment. Like when the conditions are there, um, uh, when, well, when the past and, and particularly the present conditions are there, then the jhana, a jhana, this particular jhana, will, will arise or will stabilize or whatever it is or will deepen. Um, and it's not really to do with self. It, it becomes really, really clear when you do a lot of jhana practice, dipping in and out um, over a long time in all sorts of conditions and, and bringing a kind of intelligent attention or scrutiny or, or, or curiosity, willingness to understand how is this even working? Why is it that some days it seems to go really well, other days not so well, and everything in between? Or sittings well, or not so well, etc. So if there's an interest in that, it's it's kind of unavoidable that one realizes, you know, it's not really that the self is so fantastic and um, kind of um, the architect of all this. It's the conditions. And so this kind of dissolves, this realization uh, dissolves any attempt to uh, use the jhanas to measure up or prove oneself. It's not about oneself. That's not that's not what it depends on. When, though, th- there's just been a little practice of the jhanas and uh, a little sort of success or attainment of, you know, the first four jhanas, just a little bit, um, and then we just say, oh, that's, yeah, I got it, first jhana, got that, got the second, got the third, got the fourth, and there's this quick sort of ticking off and getting of one's, um, you know, uh, stripes um, oftentimes, that realization of their dependence on conditions has not has not uh, become clear yet. It's not mature yet. Um, it's all too quick. I haven't seen. I haven't paid enough attention. I haven't had enough experience there. Um, so one one possibility is that kind of you get this strange effect where uh, the the practice just a little bit has has. Uh, reinforced unfortunately in in a way it actually feels good to the ego but the, it's actually reinforced the whole ego measuring ego proving orientation and focus and motivation um, so again it's like it, it's like it's really important to bring a kind of curiosity and intelligence both to the motivation both both to actually like is is this even does this even justify uh, being being uh, sort of um, pumped up about achieving this or that? 
I actually think, if we just stay with jhanas for, for a little bit, I actually think a much healthier desire for jhanas and for emptiness experiences is a, a love of and a curiosity about. A love of and a curiosity about the depth, those kind of depths of consciousness, of opening, of perception, the beauty there, the nourishment of uh, mystical experiences of various sorts. I think a kind of greed, uh, if you like, if I even dare to use that word, desire for and a love for those depths, um, and even an attachment to those, and the beauty and and that nourishment and, and the, the love of those mystical depths, that's a much healthier motivation. Uh, sometimes what happens is a person uh, is is uh, afraid of becoming attached to pleasure with uh, regarding the jhanas. But I don't think attachment to pleasure, uh, or, or it, in itself, it's rarely a problem in my experience teaching the jhanas. It's, it's rarely a problem. What can look like attachment to pleasure um, arises predominantly in, in with two one or other of two other kind of conditions as a basis. In other words, it looks like there's attachment to pleasure when actually what's going on is there's um, kind of a, a root of that seeming attachment to pleasure is actually a chronic avoidment, avoidance of some kind of um, psychological or emotional or relational pain. And one is just hiding um, or part of one's motivation, let's put it that way, part of one's motivation is to just, cr- there's, a, there's a chronic avoidance of certain psychological, emotional, or relational pains, or difficulties, or challenges. It's actually not attachment to pleasure. Um, it's also the case that what looks like attachment to pleasure um, can only really take root when there isn't a sense of soul-making, of mystery and beauty in the discovery of the jhanas. You understand? It's the jhanas are kind, have become kind of flat because one hasn't opened up that dimension of soul. They're just kind of pleasant experiences of, of different degrees. Um, and one hasn't really, uh, one isn't, for whatever complex reasons, one isn't really um, opening up to the sense of mystery and beauty that they can, uh, that they can open up for us. There's not really a sense of soulfulness deeping and soul making going on there. So it's just become about pleasure, and and sometimes uh, that's when that's when the attachment to the jhana. Can uh, the attachment to the pleasure can can be the can be actually a motivating force because there's nothing else. It's just pleasure, or it's um, mostly avoidance um, in, in in and looks like attachment to pleasure. So you know the the pleasure of jhana. We just even take the first four jhanas. The pleasure of those jhanas and the kind of nourishment and fulfillment of the jhanas far exceeds the the pleasure that's available to human beings in in the, the flat, uh, flatly uh, sensed senses, not you know without sensing the soul, just the pleasure of a meal or the pleasure of the sensations of taste or the pleasure of the sensations of um, sex or whatever when when it's flatly conceived. The pleasure of jhana, I mean, dwarfs those by by uh, uh, to, to, 
a totally another realm. But the pleasure of soul-making and that kind of dimensionality opening up, uh, the delight of that and the nourishment of that far exceeds the pleasure of the jhana when the jhana is conceived flatly and felt flatly, when it's just a realm of pleasure. A kind of, oh, that's convenient, that's a lot of pleasure, I'll hang out there in the third jhana or whatever it is. So, wrapped up in all of this um, is this question of motivation. Motivation. What do I, what am I wanting, whether it's from uh, jhanic experiences, whether it's from emptiness, whether it's from the whole path, and whether it's from, uh, you know, awakening. Um, and that whole idea or goal. If my motivation is this kind of um, proving myself or measuring up um, somehow, the ego measuring up, I would say that's not a deep motivation. It's not really what I would call an authentic desire. It's not a soul desire. Let's just say it's not even authentic. It's not a deep desire. It's a, it's, a, it's a superficial psychological mechanism, although the pain can feel like it goes very deep. It's not what I call authentic, it's not really your own, it's somehow put on one socially. This desire is, it, to measure up is a, is a kind of social desire. What's, what do you want? What's your authentic desire? for practice, for the path? What kind of awakening do you want? What is the awakening that you seek? What possibilities do you hope for, long for, yearn for? So, you know, when we talk about, um, or ask this question, what is awakening, and we uh, play with that question a little bit, we could approach it by studying various conceptions and statements and differentiations of the notion of awakening, and we're going to do a little bit of that um, in the Buddhist tradition as well as other other traditions and teachings. Um, uh, and we could also describe... Um, the apparent characteristics and lifestyles and personalities of those popular, popularly considered as enlightened. But as well as all that, or even instead of all that, but say as well, we could ask this question, what do you want? What do you want? But do you see that the answer to what do you want um, maybe, and maybe to a large extent, informed, conditioned, and even closed in by uh, the, the, the study of various conception statements, differentiations of awakening, as we said before, by the Buddhist tradition, by stories and images um, uh, describing the apparent characteristics, lifestyles, etc., of those popularly considered enlightened, etc. Do you see how that, what we receive there, again, from an authority or from a subculture or whatever, actually might 
shape, inform, direct, and limit the very answers we give ourselves when we ask ourselves what we want. It may shape, limit, um, inform, and direct what we actually want, or what we feel we want. Uh, uh, so, and, uh, and of course, if we ask, what do I want in life? What do I want? This question is not just about, it's like, what do I want in life? Like, wh- wh- what am I wanting in my existence, in this movement of this, this time that I have between birth and death? What do I want from that? What do I hope for? What do I long for? And, and you know, I don't need to, to tell you this, how much we are um, uh, assailed, um, barraged, um, uh, with advertising and images in, in the culture, pushing, prodding, dragging, harassing us um, to develop um, uh, this one or that one, shaping us. And sometimes, you know, we'd like to feel, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I see through all that. But it's so, so prevalent and so, so powerful. Um, And sometimes, you know, uh, some of that is really obvious and we can just you know, let go of it easily. We're not, we're not pulled in. Um, whereas we might see others uh, pulled, pulled in, in in our society and culture. But there is also that exists in in uh, much subtler ways and in other areas of our of our of our lives. So you know, um, <clears throat> I was reading about uh, an indigenous indigenous um, native tribe in the Amazon. And uh, an oil company came, or was it a um, a, da- a damming uh, people uh, putting up a hydroelectric plant there? I can't remember, but um, and they sort of tried tried to bribe the, the tribes people, and and they didn't want that. they said we give you these satellite TVs and alcohol and things. They they were not interested in them at all, but they were given them anyway. And because they had the satellite TVs and all this stuff, and they and then they saw others with all kinds of things, living very different lifestyles, uh, affluent Western lifestyles, of course, is what you see on TV. And they were exposed to corporate advertising, um, directing and magnifying their de- desires, and that, over not very long time, began to just shape what they wanted. And they wanted... Um, all that stuff, and that had uh, devastating effects on that. Uh, I mean, so on that on that region of of the Amazon, on the, on the cohe- social cohesion and well-being of that tribe, and you you can see that just lar- large scale in the world. So, what I want uh, is is you know the question is to what degree is what I want. Um, the product of conditioning. How much of my answer to what I want is the product of conditioning, of ideas, of images, fantasy. And you know, also on just a, another thing I read <coughs> um, in the Guardian in in up to 1990, or uh, uh, they did they did some. Um, I don't know what you call it, uh, sort of 
study in, in Fiji. And uh, it's from a guy called Raul Martinez in, in a book called Creating Freedom. And um, eating disorders were unheard of there uh, in, in 1990 and before that when they did studies of a sort of anthropological so- social social studies, let's say, in, in, um, <coughs> in Fiji. <coughs> in 1995, TV was introduced in Fiji. Most of it was American TV. And it was teeming with food ads, food ads, you know, all all the time on on American TV and all kinds of hamburgers and sweets and this and that and whatever. Within three years, 12% of teenage girls in Fiji had developed bulimia. Uh, So this kind of thing, I mean... That's really painfully shocking, but uh, but you, you, you're obviously aware of that kind of conditioning. But um, the point I want to say is that it can, that we can all also be subject to spiritual conditioning, a spiritual influencing of what we want spiritually um, by those we come into contact with, by teachers, by authorities, by a sangha, by a but by you know what's popular in books by by all of that. So I I don't know for some of you who've like been around a while. I mean, really a while, and uh, perhaps come across or been in and out of different sanghas, different spiritual communities, and teachers and uh, fellow practitioners. I don't know if you if you. Wondered, have wondered this as well, but sometimes in some of the communities, um, I don't just mean static communities, I, I mean just sanghas, mobile sanghas even, um, that I've moved in and out of over whatever it is, 30 years, I don't know, but um, uh, more than 30 years. Um, Sometimes I just wonder, and I don't know if you wonder this too, whether there's almost a sense of um, certain figures in in a sangha, maybe the figures of the more senior students or the teachers, sometimes sort of, I don't know, semi-consciously kind of inhabiting or semi-consciously projecting a certain persona, as if almost a kind of... um, Sell it would be too too way too strong a word, but but kind of um, projecting it uh, in, to to influence others in a way. So it depends which you know exactly what the kind of style is in which kind of sangha. Sometimes you know, and, and some of them are monastic and some are very non-monastic and whatever. But um, it can be kind of, for instance, a kind of image of um, sort of jovial. Um, you know, warm but kind of actually distant or somewhat aloof, um, affably amused at the world and uh, those who kind of scurry about the world, busy and attached, um, but with a kind of uh, goodwill in it. Um, and there's something about that persona uh, is, is, I just wonder I'm wondering if you're one if you have ever wondered it as if as if so, someone might be unconsciously or semi-consciously perhaps inhabiting it or projecting it and kind of um, 
yeah, selling it a little bit through uh, through the smile and through uh, the way one walks or through the way one stands, even in a lunch queue, through the way one's shawl is casually slung over one's shoulder or whatever it is. And, you know, it, it's maybe good to model a certain possibility um, of, let's say, disinterest, like not non-entanglement. Um, good to model um, a certain archetype even of um, kind of equanimity that's almost aloof, you know. Um, when, though, does it become a kind of uh, fixated image that, that's for us unquestioned and rigid, and, and it's kind of going on in in a way that we're not even quite conscious of it. This this pull of us, or this stamping, or rigidifying, that's what awakening looks like. That's the model. And uh, without the questioning, and it's got somehow uh, cast a little bit, in, in a kind of unconscious way, um, for us. It's a certain style, but it's a fixated image, even though it might be um, relatively unconscious rather than an, an imaginal image. And again, there's this question, what do you want? What do you want? So I was, you know, having uh, a conversation around awakening. I was asked, you know, uh, have actually several several people kind of similar um, similar lines of a conversation or presenting similar issues around this notion of awakening, around where they were, and um, and and I might have asked them, you know, well, what do you really want? What do you you really want? And sometimes very easily the question, the, the answer that comes back is, I want the end of suffering. But, but it doesn't sound to me authentic. I want the end of suffering. I say, what, what suffering? And a person, and this has happened several times in fact, a person might say, well, I'm, I'm kind of addicted to food or something like that. Um, uh, that's actually a relatively common response. And I inquire a little bit what's involved in their addiction to food. And um, you're not, we're not really not talking about anything anorexic or bulimic or something. It's just um, there's a kind of uh, uh, overindulgence with, with um, food. And I wonder actually how much suffering is there from around this or with this pattern of food addiction that you're that you're talking about how much is it really a problem is that I, I, I'm really interested in awakening that's what I'm really going for what does awakening mean it means the end of suffering I really want the end of suffering but is that is that really is there really that much suffering in that in that it's problem I've actually this you know people have actually very good, uh, well, compared to me, anyone has, but um, very kind of uh, robust digestive systems. They can actually indulge in all kinds of um, foods and sweets and overeating and stuff and feel a little bit sluggish or a tiny amount of indigestion, but it's not really a problem. Is that what you really, is that really what you want? That suffering that you experience around, around um, you know, overindulgence with certain foods or... or 
Is, is that really what you're, what's most important to you? And sometimes, um, so go, go into this question, and sometimes a person thinks a bit more and uh, uh, opens it up and says, uh, I don't want to be, uh, quoting the Buddha, they might say, I don't want to be an untrained, ordinary, run-of-the-mill person. That's a stock phrase of the Buddha, uh, talking about an unenlightened um, person or a person who hasn't done any practice and progressed on, on the path. I don't want to be uh, what the Buddha calls an untrained, ordinary, run-of-the-mill person. But then that that answer, we're probing a little deeper, is like, is it really the end of suffering? Are you really that concerned about the suffering that you experience in your life? Actually, there's, there's not that much suffering, really. There's this problem with food or whatever. It's, it's not even causing that much difficulty. So probing a little deeper, and they come up with this answer. So oh, that that answer again it suggests to me this this issue about ego identification ego measurement i don't want to be that i don't want to be in that camp what the buddha calls untrained ordinary run of the mill person so is it again is the motivation coming out of ego and measurement or uh, is that motivation let's say that aspect of the motion, or that strand of the motivation, is it larger than the attraction to actually um, lessening suffering? In other words, what's, what's the relative dominance of the different motivations? Or is there an attraction to beauty? We haven't even said anything about that yet. Actually, we did when we talked about the jhanas, but... So what, what's the relative weighting of these different motivations? If I say I don't want to be an untrained, ordinary, run-of-the-mill person, it, it seems to be uh, voicing, it seems to be indicating that this um, questions of identification, ego identification and measurement are actually um, dominating. And sometimes even then the psychology is much more, uh, I think, is, is much more complex. So a person is saying, I don't want to be untrained, I don't want to be uh, like that. But some part of them um, is, is really rebelling angrily against the, um, the prospect or the demand of training. And the Buddha talks about training a thoroughbred horse, etc. as a, as a metaphor of, 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 of the uh, development of, of meditation and practice. Sila Samadhi Panya. So at the same time, there's a, a, one part of me is, is wanting this, um, I want to measure up and, and not be, I don't want to be counted as one of those the Buddha calls untrained. And another part of me is, is rebelling and angrily uh, at, at this demand or, or even prospect of training. Now, to me that's interesting. It's, it's like, what is going on there? Can I open this up? Can I actually look at it with honesty, with integrity, with courage, as I said? <clears throat> so in the absence of a um, cosmological belief, basically, a cosmological, excuse me, context of um, Awakening, meaning the ending of rebirth. So that's a kind of cosmological idea that was uh, that the, the Buddha adopted, and uh, the Buddha taught in 
final awakening is the ending of rebirth. The stages of awakening are the movement to the ending of of the final ending of rebirth in arahantship. So you get a non-return. I mean, you're not you're not born again in this material existence. A once return, you have one more birth, one more rebirth in this material existence. Sotapanna has maximum of seven. Streamendra, Sotapanna is Pali. Streamendra has maximum of seven. So the whole thing is this trajectory to end rebirth. It's a cosmological view. Um, as, as I mentioned uh, in, in the previous talk, I think, um, and, and wrapped up in that view is there's basically a, an infinity of, uh, of suffering awaiting us in endless re- rebirth. It's basically, endless rebirth is, is equivalent to an infinity of suffering, albeit in a kind of ran- seemingly random roller coaster, um, up and down, highs and lows, and fortune and misfortune, and all that, pain and pleasure. But inevitably, um, the suffering there outweighs uh, the, um, the pleasure, and, uh, and a lot of it will be absolutely brutal. So there's a kind of cosmological view in the absence of of what awakening is. It's situated in that cosmological view, ending rebirth. In the absence of such a cosmological view, which is, I think, the case for a lot of people these days, it's not really gripping to them, that whole cosmological view of ending rebirth. It's like, what I'm really trying to do is end rebirth and not be reborn into, into the human realm quite the opposite actually if people believe in rebirth it's actually quite an attractive notion um, these days but anyway in the absence of such a cosmological belief kind of structuring the uh, the larger view of what awakening is the question comes again what is awakening as you conceive it and why do you want it so if I conceive you know a very easy answer in a Buddhist context is uh, conceive of awakening as the end of suffering. Again, sometimes, um, in fact, a lot of the times, is that what you really most want? The end of suffering. Is that really what you most want? Now, sometimes when we, when we have a lot of pain and we just feel trapped in a lot of pain, whether it's psychological or physical, um, that can be the dominant the dominant thing. I just want the end of suffering. But when, when that goes, or when we've seen through that kind of psychological pain or, or whatever it is, um, or, or rather for our whole lives, is for our whole existence. So is that really what you want? What you most want? The end of suffering, the end of dukkha. Is that your greatest desire? Is that really what you're after in practice? And often someone is saying that and it's palpably clear actually to both of us that they don't live like that. They're not living uh, and choosing the end of suffering every day. Far from it. There's lots of suffering in their lives um, that they actually don't mind too much. It's not such a big deal. A little bit of indigestion, a little bit of sloth and torpor, a little bit of um, whatever it is. They can, you know, cutting deals with suffering. I just have this much pleasure and I accept this much suffering that goes with when I crave that or I indulge in this. And a person is living their life that way. They're saying, I want the end of suffering. It's not, it's not really what's going on. 
say, okay, so end of suffering is, is one, one way that one might come frame it, one might frame it, and it might be a valid answer. My question is just, is it? And, and if it is, then great, then that's your orientation. But is it? A person might say, happiness, I want happiness. Awakening is happiness, or, or somehow tying a notion of awakening in with happiness. Um, just mention this, I'm not, I'm not quite sure what conclusion to make with this, but it, 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 it made me smile. Um, maybe you can make your own conclusions, but um, again, in, in, from The Guardian in December 2016, um, there was a, a poll, a nationwide poll in, in the UK, and it found that um, they asked, they asked um, if people thought uh, would regard themselves as happy. And uh, that was a f- one, of the, one, one of the questions. Are, are you happy? Do you consider yourself happy? And uh, 92% of UK residents said they were happy. Which I found very interesting. Um, then they were asked, another question, they were asked to estimate uh, how many... Uh, ha- Estimate what was their estimate of how many in the UK would uh, say they were happy? In other words, how many people would answer um, that question, are you happy, with a yes? Um, what's your estimate of how many in the UK would say they were happy? The average estimate was 47%. <laughs> so 92% said they're happy, and, uh, and the average of what people think, how, how many other people are happy is... The average uh, estimate of the percentage of other people are happy is forty-seven <laughs> percent. I think that's interesting. I'm not quite sure what to conclude from that. Um, it's also, I think, I don't know if it's just a U.S. statistic or, or a U.K. statistic. One in five people are on antidepressants, so I don't know quite how that squares with ninety-two percent of people saying they're happy. But um, so I don't know. Is is happiness something? that you relate to, or, or, or is a goal for you? Or do you feel like um, you're sold that uh, by some kind of spiritual teaching or psychological teaching? Uh, what does it even mean, anyway? I mean, I, I have problems with all these polls, but what, so what does happiness mean? It's a, it's a strange word. How are people interpreting it? I mean, to me... It's, it's it's such a loose word. There's there's so so much range to what that can mean. So many kinds of happiness. So many shades and so many discriminations we could make between kinds and degrees of happiness. And um, you know, in a way, uh, one wonders what what was the range in in and the kind of discrimination in the conception of, of people that answered. But anyway, what would it look like? What does it look like to say, I'm happy? Um, what does it look like if happiness is a goal? I don't know if that's something that people say. I, I, I rarely come across that as an, as an answer. Um, perhaps it's part of a larger answer. I'm not sure to what, what a person wants. 
Then there's also some considerations around, again, we're talking about notions of awakening and how we kind of get locked into uh, what we want or is it really what we want and how that's related to notions that we have and how that's related to um, what we've been exposed to and uh, all, all kinds of things. So as I said, all these questions are interwoven or weaved together. Why is it we often, or it's most common, it seems, to cling to a notion of uh, awakening as some kind of finality? I mean, the Buddha did teach it that way, uh, and most spirit traditions teach it that way. They convey a sense of, this is a goal beyond which there is nothing, or there's no, there's no further development, there's no, uh, this is it. You know, that's the end of awakening. That's the um, that's the final the final goal. What's the relationship between a finality of a goal, a finality, an awakening conceived as some kind of finality, and the self view, or the or the tendencies of of self view? So alluded to at the beginning, self-view, and, and in previous talk, um, self-view um, uh, takes as a scaffold some kind of uh, view of finality with regard to awakening. It becomes a kind of, that very finality becomes a kind of basis, if you like, or support or scaffolding for, on which um, self-view and ego-view can, can be constructed, fabricated, and, and oftentimes hardened. So I mean, trained or untrained, ordinary, run-of-the-mill, or not ordinary, whatever it is. So I am X. And, and that whole kind of black-and-white thinking um, can, can very much... Uh, which is also quite characteristic of addiction as well, and also a lot of a lot of other other uh, difficulties. Um, but that that kind of black and white thinking can very much come in in terms of both self view and view of goal, view of what awakening is, and they go together. And there's something I think important about that. So we tend to be to think in terms of some kind of final reaching point of awakening. Well, we might, just as we ask, what, what, what does happiness look like? We might, we might also ask, what, what would the end of suffering look like? The cessation of suffering, cessation of dukkha, what does that look like? How would it manifest? What would it look like, um, the end to live? What would it look like to live uh, the end of greed, aversion, and delusion. What does that look like? Now, again, you get these classical Buddhist terms from the Pali Canon. Um, suffering, uh, in Nibbana, um, uh, Four Noble Truths, each of them, Three Kilesas, etc. Very wide interpretation of what they mean. But actually, with any interpretation, I would say. I would still ask, what does it look like? What would it look like to actually live the end of greed, aversion, and delusion, the end of those? 
Where are you going to draw the line for what greed is? Um, in a, some of you will know, you know, my tendency or my preference, if if you like, with these, uh, with, with regarding what delusion is, is to is to regard it as a spectrum and also clinging as a spectrum, so that when we talk about really subtle clinging or really deep or subtle delusion, they actually are implicated com- thoroughly into the very fabrication of any and all perception. So that to really be without delusion is also to be in that moment without perception. And to be completely without clinging is also to be without perception in that moment. One cannot live that. So where on the spectrum of clinging and delusion am I going to draw the line and say this is delusion but that isn't? And if, as, as we'll get to a little bit, if um, actually one's motivation, when one looks inside and says, is it the end of suffering? No, not really. Is it happiness? I'm not sure. Um, and one says, what is it that I really want? What is it? And if, it through my practice and for my existence, and if the answer, or some of the answers are, which I know will be the case for some of you, It's really your question, and not for me, and not for anyone, I think, to tell you what to want. Um, But if the answer is that, actually, why am I practicing? What am I practicing for? And it's really about, it's the love of exploration. It's the love and the longing for sacredness, or sacrednesses opening up. It's the love and the longing for soulfulness. It's the love and the desire for beauty and beauties opening up. It's uh, the interest and the uh, beauty of what we're calling the creation discovery of self-other world and all of that. If it's actually that, or those kinds of things that are motivating you, um, why why would we not allow the notion of awakening to be open-ended? What's the limit to my love of exploration? What's the limit to the sacrednesses that can open up, or the soulfulness, the soul-making, the beauty, beauties? What's the limit to the kind of poetic... Uh, and skillful and soul-making fabrication of self, other, world, and eros. Would that be okay, to have an open-ended notion of awakening? I've touched on that before, I know, so it won't be new to most of you. So I want to continue, but uh, again, just just to sum up, I really want to stress what I feel is is really important to kind of um, say unpack, but unearth, look at, um, ask what is around uh, and in for me and in relation 
in in my relationship to this idea of awakening, my relation to to my practice towards awakening. What what is that? In what's involved in my approach, in my conception, in my relationship, in terms of intention, assumption, drive, etc. Uh, to me, as I said, that's that, that question has uh, is a question uh, motivated itself by kindness, but it has a lot of boldness in it, or it can have a lot of boldness in it. And in, in itself, it can actually open up a whole other level of uh, what we might call awakening, liberation. But let's stop there for now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.